Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This neighborhood is Uptown, right? Yeah, it's Uptown. So what's the word on Uptown? What's the, uh, I guess that's a lot of different types of places in one, but, so the Superdome is here. Yeah. So that thing Let's hulking. See what's, what side of Canal Street, because everything on this side of Canal Street is Uptown. Okay. And everything on the other side of Canal Street is Downtown. And you had just driven in, were you at Stennis today? Yeah, I was at Stennis today. That's kind of a commute, huh? <laughs> 45, 50 minute commute oh. every day. But you wouldn't live out there? Oh, I definitely wouldn't live out there. Uh, no, I never considered living out there. So I wanted to do some improvement post Katrina like everybody else say. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just thought New Orleans would be a good fit for that. With like Mississippi, I didn't understand whether or not it was gonna be the race in the South and I'm like, you know what? Nah, I just, I take my chances in New Orleans, Louisiana. Mid-City New Orleans with Dr. Howard Conyers, host of the PBS show Nourish, a rocket scientist by day and a whole hog barbecue pitmaster by night and by weekend. Yes, if I have to have only one more episode in this flagrantly fabulous town, then I'm glad it's with Dr. Conyers. He is originally from the Deep South, the rural South, but he's chosen to make New Orleans his home after Katrina. We talked about that move about how black pitmasters are reclaiming barbecue, and about exactly what space engineering and fire meets pig engineering have in common. From Luminary Media and Roads and Kingdoms, this is Nathan Thornburg, and you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. It's at the end of a working day. Working day. Tuesday afternoon, deserves at least a few fingers and listen this bottle is not running away from us so we can keep it there all right well let's have a sip cheers cheers wow oh that's good that's that's great uncle nears he knew us a little something or two you had said definitely that this is what we should drink for the podcast and i'm I'm glad you did. So tell me, what is Uncle Nearest 1856 about? So Uncle Nearest is uh, Jack Daniel. He learned how to make whiskey from a slave. And it was named Nearest, Nearest Green. And it just came out maybe about two years ago, this particular story. And so they start making this particular whiskey to mm -hmm. honor his contributions to the Jack Daniels distillery. I think it's an African-American woman named Fawn Weaver. Correct. Fawn Weaver out of L.A., I believe. Fawn Weaver out of L.A. who had heard the story about... And again, I only know this because you set me on this whole path of finding this bottle and, and thinking about it. But she had heard the story about Uncle Nearest, which is, I guess, what they called Nearest Green, who was an emancipated slave who taught Jack Daniels, like the Jack Daniels, how to make whiskey. And I think what she did is she went to Lynchburg, that happy town they tell you and they show you in the commercials, and she looked for a sign or a, some sort of commemoration or anything 
for this man who had been at the birth of Jack Daniels whiskey and couldn't find it. And I, I've never met this woman, but I assume she's the kind of woman who's like, well, fuck it, I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really enjoy hearing that story, but it's more than just Uncle Nearest who was out there. There was a lot of black men who were making whiskey in the American South. They were making corn liquor or moonshine, as commonly people know, or stump hole, depending on what region you're from. But I don't know if this was the combination or the chain that you were making in your own mind. But to me, it really reminded me of, of what I saw in, in Nourish, the, the show uh, that you have with PBS, where you're kind of like flipping through a guide to the best American pitmasters and seeing that it's all white men, basically. I mean, no African-Americans, and you had this sort of revelation, that same thing, right? It's sort of along that same line of thought. It's like African-Americans made this in the first <laughs> place. How are they now not in the picture in that way? Yeah, that, that exactly the line of thought I was thinking of when I chose that particular drink. But, you know, I think you can unturn any discipline, any science, any any act that's come out of, you know, America at large, and there's always going to be someone written out of, the, out of that the story. And very often that someone is African-American in, in, even in podcasting. So, well, <laughs> hey. But tell me about that moment where you, having grown up doing very intense South Carolina barbecue as just as a part of your family, that you kind of saw that other people were getting acclaim and recognition for things that you can do on some level. <laughs> so what was that like? When I saw people getting acclaim for it, it didn't anybody look like the men I learned from. And that was the kind of most disheartening thing because the stories that were shared to me was even during the most racist times in the South that it was common for white people had a black man come to their farm to cook the barbecue. So it was totally reversed when I started seeing that claim. Paint a picture of barbecuing in, in your childhood. So barbecue in my childhood, if I painted a picture, uh, we would have barbecue whole hog. We would have rice. We have barbecue hash. We also have... So this is something of your breakfast this morning, <laughs> so, which was rice and barbecue hash, right? Right. Something in my breakfast this morning. And uh, just so people know, barbecue hash is... They, call, they refer to it as liver and lights hash. So people use all parts of the hog when they was cooking barbecue. Liver and... Lights. And lights refer to the lungs. Oh, wow. So, so that's like a real scrapple, like a real mix of anything. You use every part of the hog. Okay. And that particular dish has roots in pre-Civil War, actually. You only see it in the Carolinas. Wow. Okay. Other things we have when I plate, we have skin from the hog. We will crack the skin like a crispling, like a crackling. Mm -hmm. The other thing we have is some kind of greens, whether it's collards, mustards, turnips. In the summer, we may have butter beans and okra mixed together or snap peas or field peas, green beans, always squash. It was always some sort of vegetables there. And this is rural South Carolina. This is rural South Carolina. You're, you're not a city kid. I'm not a city kid at all. So how long have you been in New Orleans? I've been in New Orleans since uh, 2011. I moved to New Orleans in February of 2011. It was Mardi Gras time. I didn't. <laughs> was that it? Was that what did it to you? No, I didn't know that. And then my realtor was kind of joking that, oh, you live close to parade route. Like, I hope not. She's like, no, you're in the middle of it. And then the year after year, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm in the middle of it. So you do you leave town? <laughs> I haven't you, gotten to that point yet. Do you join in? I go to the parades, but I really like seeing the Mardi Gras, the black mask in Indian culture. I really enjoy seeing that tradition. That's probably my favorite thing about carnival season. Yeah. I mean, that's an old culture, right? That's, that's an old culture, seeing the people make these beautiful suits, 
every year. That's probably my favorite thing about Carnival. Last year, I went to work on Carnival Day, but I went early so I could get back into the city so I could see them walking around the neighborhoods. Yeah, that's not a, they don't celebrate that as a holiday in Mississippi? <laughs> no, nah, not that. You only don't see that here in New Orleans. Otherwise, yeah. you have to go to Trinidad or somewhere in the Caribbean. Right, or up in our, in our neck of the woods. We have enough Trini culture that people are like breaking their parades and stuff, but it's also cold as hell, and uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a different vibe for sure. Part of the reason that you had wanted to come and be here in New Orleans and you work in Mississippi, but you live here, was to see the city that had some need after, you after, know, after, after Katrina. Katrina. I mean, it's kind of cliche, so I hate saying that, but I felt like I hopefully through my life story, my life work, that like young black people, they could see that there's opportunity. I don't, I want them to see that different careers are attainable. Right. And you're not saying that as the only black PhD in town, but I'm not adding another one, adding another never one is going to hurt. It never going to hurt. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think my life story is pretty unique. And I also want to show like you can have two different sides of your life or three different sides of your life. You don't have to be one dimensional. Mm-hmm. You could do your culture well, but you could also be an engineer. You could be a doctor. You could be a lawyer and still hold true to who you are as a person. The things that make you special. And so hopefully my work so far, because I don't want my life working in yet. I still got a lot more to do. I got a lot more I want to accomplish. I hope like young people could really see that my story is an inspiration to them. Yeah, it is amazing how, you know, uh, I think particularly the sciences have gotten conflated with a certain kind of majority culture, too. And I mean, you, you would know way more about this. But I just watching my wife, who's not white, go through and get a degree in medical science, become a doctor is like, very often there were points where she was told like, well, you don't talk like a surgeon. Like that's the verbatim what people had told her, you know, and that's just like she knew what they were saying, you know, like that's. It's yeah, just, that's very coded. But yeah. And, you know, I, I guess one of the things that I'd, I'd read also that makes perfect sense, actually, with, you know, where you've gone in your life uh, and the way you're combining your your two loves and disciplines, but your father was a welder, is that right? Yeah, my father was a welder. And so much of this like very muscular, intense barbecue that I've seen you do is really, first it starts with an act of welding, right? <laughs> In modern day, it starts with an act of welding. Right. It's like these incredible contraptions that, you know, are... Uh, put together from the one piece of this and different parts of that and you know to to hold animals large enough to make you interested in barbecuing them <laughs> yeah there's a lot of ingenuity and a lot of ingenuity and resourcefulness so your father did like weld together different pits and yeah i mean especially when i got into my teenage years before then we always had like an old refrigerator pit that we gutted out from a refrigerator and so how's that work you take the door off you dig take a the- hole no, it's just standing like it's like a. You turn it on the side instead of the refrigerator standing vertically. Oh, okay. You turn it on the side and lay it horizontally, but you gutted out their insulation. Got it. But old refrigerators were made differently, where they had one long door instead of having a top door and a bottom door. Right. So there's no freezer compartment in the whole hog fridge pit. No. All right. So in the fridge, after you've taken the insulation out, then you just start. That's where you put your coals. You and put your coals. You put a little rack in there. You throw some iron, some piece of pipes through there, huh. through the top, to, and you sit the wire right on top. That's beautiful. It's keep you from digging a hole. The <laughs> <laughs> number one goal in life, just keep from getting the hole <laughs> right that's a lot of work that's a lot of work we should just break to say this is this is a great whiskey that's a great whiskey for sure um and i you know i did have some makers earlier today which is a workhorse whiskey <laughs> her bourbon but 
this is a we're already kind of stepping stepping it way up. So the uh, coming from your father, obviously mechanically inclined, you end up getting a degree and a PhD in mechanical engineering. That's what you have a. You have other degrees as well. I have a degree in bioenvironment engineering, which basically can combine agricultural and engineering together. Okay. I have a PhD in mechanical engineering from Duke University. Okay. And uh, in an area called aeroelasticity. Aeroelasticity. Yes. Okay. Can you give me a, a layman's version of what that is? It means fluid structure interaction. So when you take your trips and you look out the side of the aircraft wing, that wing going to flex a little bit. Okay. You don't want to see that wing flex too much, though. No. I'm always looking just to make sure. You want to see it, you want to see it give a little bit, though. Okay. Because <laughs> if it doesn't, then, right. You're in, you're in trouble. And you got your buildings that's supposed to sway. sway. In the you, earth, ha- right? you have some of your buildings pulled to sway. So that's aeroelasticity. Correct. I mean, how is that related to this kind of the manual nature of, of I mean, I don't even know. I guess your day job is still at, at NASA, still at Stennis. Yeah, still at Stennis Space Center. It's, it's sort of like. Barbecue and those two, they just two total opposites. Yeah. I mean, I think I think things now from like engineering and science and put it into barbecue and sometimes think yeah. things from barbecue and put it into engineering world. Like, for instance, I'm patient. I try to be patient sometimes. But sometimes it demands of the job, so you got to get it done. Right. But then on the barbecue side, then I take some of this engineering knowledge and I say, let me see. Let me take some notes. Let me see. Do I'm gonna have a design review on this particular pit? <laughs> I think I'm gonna have a 30, 60, or 90 percent design review and see how this jives out. Do we need to have any changes? Well, I have seen that on your on your PBS show, which again is is one of the things that makes it pretty delightful to watch. Is just you come at it from from yourself and like being who you are. So when you walk up to you know a full line of pigs, you know, kind of rotating slowly against wood, you're like. Hey, what's the gasket like? What's the ball bearing that is like creating the ability for this thing to rotate? And you can kind of geek out on that. Where I was, pro- I would probably just be knocked unconscious by the, you know, the amazing smell of the the fat <laughs> on the fire or something. But that's obviously where your mind goes to. It's I mean, like, how does it work? Like, how did it get put together? Yeah, of course I'm going to how it tastes when I eat it. But I want to definitely see all the engineering behind it. I, I have a great appreciation for it. Um, so tell me about the whole cow. One of the episodes I remember best and and it's pretty audacious i mean you see have you seen many people cook whole cows I've, before? I, I've never seen it in person and i've seen a lot of animals you know at their end but not that how about looking like that like uh <laughs> butterfly it out and well butterfly so you could do that with goats uh i have seen that but it's you know with it's a cows. third of the size the cow is kind of like with uncle nears like i want to show african-american contributions to barbecue and in a lot of historical literature i read they talk about african-americans cooking whole cows Huh. They, they talked about them cooking cows, pigs, goats, lambs, turkeys, chickens. And I said, the cow was the only thing I didn't know anything about. The cow was the only thing that my father didn't know anything about. He never heard anybody barbecuing a whole cow. And so that had to be been over 100 years ago. So it's just been lost kind of in the culture. I think it's been lost in the culture, partially. I think it was lost in the culture, one. And two... Farming families didn't have an extra cow to sacrifice. So you worked with a farmer, with a local farmer here. I worked with a local farmer, uh, Mr. Ben Burkett and Terry Price. They were two great black farmers in Mississippi. Yeah, so you worked with them to find one that wasn't the largest cow that they had? Yeah, I didn't want the largest cow. Part of my thought process was I wanted a cow that was, um, I use a modern Angus, but 
I could have used a pine wood cattle of some sort, but I wanted something that was indicative of the times back then. Oh, really? So something like a heritage breed. I wanted something. I wanted something heritage breed ish, yeah. sort of size wise. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want the heritage breed ish because it would have had a different property. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have had as much fat, and I wasn't sure how how that was on effect in the cooking process. So well, I see. I'm yeah, I'm wondering about that. Like, what is the process? I mean, it just seems like it'd be so lean. It'd be so cow. lean unless you get it at the right time. Mm. And so I said, no, I'm not going to take that chance. And I'm going to go with a regular Angus and with a little bit more fat, a little more forgiving. That's uh-huh. the flavors that most people are accustomed to today. All right. They could get into that. And then you jerry rigged essentially a, a, a new pit, a new a new contraption that would hold a, an animal this size. I don't know if I'd call it Jagger, Jerry Rigger. I mean, <laughs> sorry, for, for a scientist, that's probably a, a demeaning word. Uh, you just kind of hacked it together. No, you did a design review. Uh, we and, did several designs on that and several iterations. So. Uh, and, and worked through at, uh, at, at peak scientific form to create something that, because you can't go and buy that off the rack. No, you can't go buy it off the rack. Um, what's the challenge of putting that together? It's just the sheer weight or the distribution of fat or like meat? The biggest challenge I thought was handling the weight to be able to rotate it easily. You had to have a big a structure to hold the cow, and that's going to have to have some weight because you want some rigidity. You don't want something to be bending when you put the whole cow in there, so you got to have some stiffness in there. So your aerodynamic... Elasticity. The elasticity portion of the aeroelasticity part came right. into play. Okay. Um, so a little give, but not too much. Because then it's going to sink down. It'll sink down. So you want right. to be pretty rigid. So therefore, you, you don't have a beefy structure. Mm-hmm. So with that beefy structure, it'll cause for more weight. Got it. Then you add the, the weight of the cow on top of that. Then that's even more weight you got to account for. Mm-hmm. So the structure itself has a weight. Then the cow has a weight. And then you want to turn that. You want to be able to turn it pretty easily. Right. You think about simple devices that you could put in a certain configuration to make it easier to turn. So what was your answer? What did, what did you come up with? I came up with a really novel solution. We'll be patenting in the process right now. <laughs> for real? Yeah, for real. Okay. Well, don't tell me too much about it till the patent clears. So. Yeah, till the patent clears. Yeah. <laughs> but we put a, something very simple that actually handles weight, and it, it works. It's proven. I'm very much a city person at this point, but, you know, I... I'm enough of a red-blooded American to see an, another man barbecuing a whole cow and thinking like, hey, maybe I could get into that. I mean, I encourage anyone to do it. I just know it's a significant investment. Right. I want you to go do it. I want you to call me when you do it, too. So, <laughs> so you can you can take a look at it. So I can take a look. Uh, man, yeah. Well, maybe when your patent comes out, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll acquire a license for the, the Northeast to make that happen. But, I mean, listen, it's not just the device and the equipment that goes into it. But it's also the time. I mean, this is like you were saying, like a goat doesn't take a lot of time. For me, seven hours of making sure that an animal is turning and keeping the, you know, the fire going and even like that's a very serious commitment. This cow was was what? 20 something hours. 20 hours. And somebody's got to attend. 20 plus. I think it's 20 plus hours. Wow. I stopped counting. Wow. So that's an all night, that's all, all day, all night thing. Um, and somebody's got to be there Every watching 30, the wood. 40 minutes yeah. watching it. It's like having a, a newborn, yeah, a, a big. I, I have to take your word on that part, but cooking uh, newborn, <laughs> that's crazy. So how did you do it? You had a team. You, I had a team. Yeah, but and my wife forced me to actually go to sleep for two hours. Oh yeah, and I brought my father up here because um, here so I could go to sleep for a couple of hours. I, I wouldn't get upset if my father probably burned up the cow. I don't know, <laughs> but no, I had a, I had a really good team. But uh, literally, I watch 
for the 18 hour, 18 plus hours that I awake, I watch every shovel of coals put underneath that cow ward. I placed it myself or the team placed it. So you're kind of a like a pit micromanager. Normally I'm not a pit micromanager, <laughs> but because the cost of that cow was so much. <laughs> that and, is I, a, right. and I had no practice run. Every shovel counts. Uh, is that true? You put one bad shovel in there and, and things start to go awry? With it could cow? go awry. Wow. That's sustained pressure. All right, so you said you brought that patience to, to your day job at Stennis Space Station. What exactly do you do there? What's, you're, you're involved in rocketry somehow, right? All right, so currently I work on facility design and I work on an engine called the RS-25 engine, space shuttle main engine, A1 test stand. And so like basically I work on like designs to like make sure valves and different components are in place to make sure we can safely test an engine. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it could be something as simple as a stair rail that you might need to replace or you might want to have a fuel cell backup and maybe involved with that or building another building like a storage shed. I mean, again, you're saying that they're they're not very similar, but in my mind, I just can't help but think Man, there's got to be some some heavy overlap. You know, you're talking about having ideas of how to work things together and make sure. And like you said, you, you only have one chance at a cow. <laughs> yeah. So I guess one thing you have in common was like engineering and cooking a whole cow is you have to learn how to distribute the loads and understand how to handle loads and handle forces. Loads are forces and every material not going to handle it the same way. So you have to know what materials handle certain temperatures, certain weights, uh, whether it's really hot or really cold, it's a very different environment when you have cryogenics huh. versus when you have something come out of the engine nozzle that's really hot. Right. And the you got to account for the physics involved. Um, and so, I, I mean, it's funny because a lot of, I don't know, you talk to the molecular gastronomists and things like that that are always kind of bringing in science, you know, in, in more of, I guess, a, a, a micro sort of way, you know, like these little interactions that they're kind of borrowing from science. But these are, these are kind of macro things that you're thinking about. Like, it's just engineering at the end of the day. Does that make for a different kind of barbecue experience than... You think other people can do? I mean, is it just the ability to cook something or whole, or would you would you do a pig differently because of you know because of your background and your kind of specific interests? Being an engineer and doing barbecue, I see things a lot differently. So I had the opportunity one time to cook in Denver, Colorado, mm-hmm. and being an engineer, I had to think about boiling water in the mountains. Right. You don't deal with boiling water in the mountains in the south. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Your, your highest mountains are not going to be high enough to affect your pasta cook time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, therefore, I had to think about, like, how do you translate that effect of cooking barbecue to cooking in Denver, Colorado, where there's altitude difference? Huh. And I don't know how many people would take that in consideration. What did you come up with? What do you do at altitude? Because ultimately, it's like it's kind of liquid dynamics, too, as the fat begins to render. And you... For me, it was about the temperature. And, well, I don't use a thermometer, so I can't go on that rule of thumb. But... Why don't you use a thermometer? You're a man of science. Is, it, is that where when science and kind of tradition conflict, you're just like, you have to go on instinct? I go on instinct, and then I never was taught with a thermometer, so I don't know how to cook with a thermometer. Then it would just kind of set you back. Or it would, it would like distract some part of your brain that needs to be feeling the animal more than just like. Yeah, I'm kind of scared. Oh, yeah? I'm kind of scared to use a thermometer. What are you afraid you're going to see? 
I may my engineering mind may come on too much. You'd be like, oh, <laughs> oh you got temps. You, you, your temperature is saying you're good to go. So this would be like the geek version of like hulking out. Like you would be like this engineer would come out of yourself and be on an unstoppable, you know, kind of regulating yeah. numerically. Like you might need to you might need to readjust the coals over here because your <laughs> thermocouple says you're at 175 over here, you're at 225 over here, you need to do some balancing. This is not right. Keep the doctor bottles. You you have a day job, you are super accomplished in your field. Barbecuing is like a release from all of that? Is it? Is It a- It started out being a release, yeah. like therapeutic mm-hmm. for the first four or five years since I moved to New Orleans. Yeah. It was therapeutic and I had the opportunity to educate people. Now it has become like a second job, second life. <laughs> Now you got pressure because everybody wants to know what Dr. Conyers is barbecuing and how he's doing Dad it. Dad or just was hosting a show with PBS mm-hmm. and we're still working through that, see what's going on in the future. That's been something I really enjoy too, hosting and co-producing the show. That's been really awesome experience. Yeah, people should definitely check it out. Like I said, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly the reason why we sought you out to, to come and talk to you because it has a little bit of all of those things, right? There's obviously, you know, this is what Bourdain always told us, like, don't forget the food porn. You know, like talk about all the things that need to be talked about, but never forget to give them the shot, you know, of like, <laughs> this is what a barbecue pig looks and tastes and, you know, so they can really get it. Uh, so there's that in your show, but it is also, there's this element of education, which as, you know, as we were saying right at the top is strangely necessary that people need to be educated on the African-American quality of barbecue in this country or like the character. The character, I mean, just the food ways behind not just barbecue, just a lot of different things. I want people to understand Southern food is built upon African-American foods and indigenous foods. Mm-hmm. You can't omit those two communities when you start talking about Southern food ways. You know, now as Pepper Bowen was pointing out that African-Americans farm maybe one or two percent of the farmable land in this country, it's like being public and out in front about that message seems like it's only going to be more and more important. Because when you see like Ronald Reagan's Morning in America video about, you know, the sun rising over Kansas Hill, like it's not a black farmer who comes up (laughs) next, you know, it's like it feels like there is this kind of stereotypical picture that has been put on American people about who farms and who doesn't. And as the reality catches up with the whiteness of agriculture, the counter-programming becomes even more necessary. Yeah, and I think um, Bourdain says something that really resonated with me when he was in Kenya. Uh, well, he was eating and drinking the blood of the cow. That <laughs> oh, yeah. particular episode resonated with me for some reason. Yeah, where he was making Kamau drink uh, cow's blood. Yeah, Kamau was not, not on board. He was not on board. Yeah. My, my wife said, would you have done that? And she said, you probably would have done that in the moment. I mean, because I probably said, like, you can't insult these people. It was pretty gross, but Bourdain was a champ. But at the end of the episode, Bourdain said something to the effect was, uh, I appreciate people allowing me to tell their stories, but people need to tell their own stories. Yeah. When I heard him say that, I said, you know what? I need to take this thing a little more seriously. Hmm. I mean, I already took it seriously, but I need to really take deep, dive deep into that. Right. You have the opportunity to be that person. He was actually working on different projects that were... He was just going to step in the background and for people who could tell their own story that were, you know, queer women of color or like whatever. Like, and it's not it's not about a superficial thing about, you know, checking off a box, but it's it's that you actually get different stories. You get different access points. You're in different rooms, you know, that Tony would never get into. And the same thing, uh, you know, that struck me watching your show on PBS. It's a different show, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a different show. And then, like, I would never want to be Bourdain. Like, people are like, do you want to be Bourdain? I'm like, 
Bourdain did a great job. I want to be Howard Conyers. Like, I, I hope when people watch Nourish, they see Howard Conyers. And granted, I could learn some things for Bourdain, but like, I want people to know, like, I'm Howard Conyers. When, I'm, when, when I give you a story on food, I want you to know it, it generally coming from a very authentic place. And it, right, the trick is not to have a, a series of other other Bourdains, but create an environment where, you know, producers and, and networks and platforms will encourage and see the value. And yeah, well, I, I think being a doctor in aeroelasticity already takes you in a very different place. Than, <laughs> uh, you know, so what, what is next for you in, in terms of cooking and, and what, what you think you might be able to do uh, with that? So in terms of cooking, I'm slowly trying to get out, not necessarily get out of cooking, but I want to spend more time documenting. I really need to work on this book. I, that's something I really need. I need to sit down and like focus and write. Books will break you, man. What is what is the book? Do you have, do you have a specific book project you're working on? I need to really share my knowledge of American barbecue. For, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a ton of barbecue books out there, but there are not any African-American books out there. And mm-hmm. I think like it needs an African-American voice who actually does it, who grew up in the tradition. Adrian Miller is writing a book on barbecue coming up this year, I believe, or two years from now, but there's something about when you practice the craft, you have a very different perspective. And being in a community where my father learned how to cook in the ground and people before him cooked in the ground, there's a different set of knowledge that comes down with the barbecue tradition that's not in the books. It's all past orally, and I want to do that. I want to also like do a documentary on barbecue like make it really visually appealing. I mean, Nourish is kind of like a little small documentary, but I want to give people a kind of comprehensive, because people don't read, just the the nature of it. As a writer, I've noticed <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> Come on, people. <laughs> you got to have a several money shots. So <laughs> I think people will like to see the documentary because it will make it palatable. Mm-hmm. And they can say, oh, I can see it now. Man, I have to go back and read the book. A lot of times people write books and then come back and make a documentary on it, but... I think I may go opposite. Right. You want to you want to start with those visuals, the popping fat, the popping fat, the hissing grease. Oh, yes. So obviously you must be a partisan for South Carolina barbecue. But you've gone to other regions. Do you, do you respect what they do? I respect what other regions do. So when I finish my work, I'm going to stop until I'm going to stop in about the 1960s and 1970s. Okay. And I'm going to show American barbecue up to that point. Got it. After that point, it's somewhere in that time frame where American barbecue start making its own regionalizations. Oh, interesting. So it was much more of a monoculture of it barbecue. Was a, it was a much more monoculture of barbecue in the American South. Barbecue went with slavery. I have found the evidence that you could see that trend. Interesting. And then in 1960s, that's when we start to have everything from Santa Maria barbecue to... You start seeing Texas, a lot more Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then people start leaving the South. People can't get whole animals when they're in Chicago. Or right. When people start leaving the South, you start seeing these new evolutions of barbecue. But, I mean, as a barbecuing destination, I mean, New Orleans is known for a whole lot of things and incredible food culture. Barbecuing is not... No, I tell people all the time, I don't come to New Orleans looking for barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> please go to the other regions. I mean, I know there's some great barbecue spots in the city of New Orleans, but please come to New Orleans for New Orleans cuisine. Right. Go to Texas. Go to South Carolina. Go to North Carolina. Go to there for their barbecue. Come to New Orleans for the gumbos, the etouffees, the jambalayas. No, absolutely. I mean, I was just in before I met up with you and had this incredible fried chicken with... 
what they call it a bourbon bur- street love with yeah bourbon street love with a cream sauce and crawfish it's tail. a crawfish cream sauce on top of it you know it would just never occur to me to have a crawfish cream sauce on fried chicken and it was so, so good, good. <laughs> it was ridiculous <laughs> chef jeff thank you for that chef jeff he does a good job over there I heard that i mean that's the kind of thing that right that you have to come here before but also walking through the french quarter yesterday i just realized that many many people who were there probably had no idea really where they were they were just kind of generally on vacation and getting pretty blotto and like their sense of like maybe we're in the south so it's barbecue time or something you know after after their seven you know kind of uh, get your beignets <laughs> right yeah there's a lot to be doing beside that you lose out on so much America lose out on so much when they just size people up based on what they see because you just don't know what the hidden talents those individuals have right so it's obviously setting yourself as you know scientist equivalent of a lab coat is yeah <laughs> you, you don't see me in a lab coat <laughs> walking around town. Or, or or even as a pit master, like sometimes people think, they say, I'm looking for, one time I had this guy approach me and say, I'm looking for this pit master. And I was like, I'm looking for this like 50 or 60 year old black guy. I'm like, <laughs> I heard he worked for NASA. I'm like, um, I know a guy who worked for NASA. I know a guy who's a pit master, but I don't think he's. 50 to 60 years old. <laughs> like, I think I can help you find that guy. If you, you open your eyes. You open your eyes a little right, bit. Right, right. Uh, that's amazing. Well, that is true. You you do have a, you, you've got your boyish good looks about you still that uh, helps perpetuate that. But that's the, right. When you think of like a South Carolina master of barbecue. <laughs> yeah, but I don't pay my dues. I, I don't put blood, sweat and tears into those pits. And that's, I mean, I guess that's the same thing as just saying I look like just another african-american male from the south i mean people are so constricted in their vision you know of like what you expect people to be and what you think they should look like and it's it's the thing that's dragging us down so hard i mean we were talking today about education in this city and and across the country and it's like it's not like a black people's problem although it's definitely that but it's also it's i mean white people like we are missing out on an entire strength of the country, of the economy, like all these things that we're like worried about. Well, if you get your boot off the neck of half your country, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, no, diversity I think is a really important tool because like I may see the problem in one way, this young queer lesbian woman may see it a whole nother way, or this white man may see it another way, this Asian person may see it another way. And I like, we bring our ideals together and we, we come up with something really beautiful. Yeah, man, that's a, that's there you go. I mean, it's kind of like gumbo in a way. Like gumbo has certain roots and elements. Of, like the dish gumbo has certain roots and mm-hmm. things. But when you start adding different ingredients to the pot, it gets better and better. <laughs> I loved I loved your conversation. Speaking of gumbo, <laughs> you remember you remember this episode? Just so great. There was some mutual revulsion about like what did you you put corn in some stew? <laughs> You put uh, corny or gumbo, Dr. Conyers? No, no corny. No, Miss Leah Chase's A National Gym. That was a great interview. I mean, I enjoyed the interview a lot. Oh, my goodness. She's she's 95. Now she might be older, right? She, she might be older now. Can't remember. Yes. But she's so sharp. I can't tell her age. She's so sharp. Yeah, second second half of her 90s uh, and was giving you crap about South Carolina version. But you of- take it. You, <laughs> hey, if Miss Chase gives you crap on anything, you That's take right. it. 
that's a, it was uh, it's amazing um but yeah that's the that's the uh, that's that's the kind of thing that feels like you can get down here and be be close to on some level i mean you're so you're you're not from this town do you see yourself i mean could you see yourself spending the rest of your time here is it is it is the connection that strong or like I think I want to live in a color place. I wouldn't mind living closer to back home. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't mind living in New Orleans, but I also wouldn't mind getting back into agriculture and farming. Oh, really? Yes. So, so retirement plan. <laughs> you never second. know. If it never know where where life goes, but I wouldn't mind getting back into farming somewhere. It may not be large scale, hundreds of acres, but it may be small scale farming. What would you do? What would you farm? What's I definitely your... want to continue farming on family sweet potatoes that were growing for a long time. But um, and that's a particular strain that that your yeah, family passed down. Doing. It was passed down a long time. I want to make sure I keep that going because that's a living legacy yeah. to the community. But I want to share that with the greater society. I want to share that with America. I don't just want to keep it in our community. We've been guarding it and enjoying it, but I think it's worthy of other people eating it too. Something about the land is very important with those black farmers who lost a lot of land. To me, like I want to actually reclaim some of that land. Mm-hmm. Just find a way to get, get, some get people of, back farming. For me, like, Farming is more than just farming. It's about eating healthy. And I know people associate me personally with cooking barbecue, but I also want people to associate me with trying to eat healthy. And with being a product of the farm, like we knew how to live off the land. We knew how to eat per the seasons. We knew certain things. I go to a farmer's market in the middle of December. I shouldn't be expecting to get a squash, like a yellow squash. If I'm, getting, if I'm not getting acorn squash or I'm not getting collars or mustards or turnips, I'm looking the wrong place. The produce that they're bringing in may be coming in from someplace else. And mm-hmm. so I think it's a lot of lessons. Food is so important to our diets. Yeah. And just the overall health. And I guess that's but that's an education thing, too, is because I bet if a lot of kids in this city can't see themselves as rocket scientists, they probably can't see themselves as farmers either, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. And I want you to see me in some overalls. So, like, people, <laughs> people say, man, you cook barbecue. You will never see me in overalls. <laughs> You'll see me in some fatigues. You'll see me in some jeans. Generally, when I cook, in, like, when I cook barbecue, I generally cook in fatigues. I just, they got extra pockets. They're convenient for me. I like how they look. They look cool. That's amazing. But you right. never see me in overalls. That's... You never had a producer throw your pair of overalls and no. say, all right, come on, it's time to be a barbecue person. <laughs> what you see is what you get. <laughs> I love that. All right, so what's the next thing we're going to see uh, see from you? You're going to be working on this book. You're going to be working on this book. You'll probably see me starting to speak more often across the country. Okay. I'm going to speak at like North Carolina A&T this year, and I'm going to speak in South Carolina. Those are some of the things I know I got coming up. But like public speaking, you will see more of me doing that regards. Uh, you, you will definitely see more of me in media, whether it's with PBS or whoever, because I really have found an interest in that, and I really yeah. like that. Um, I like that space a whole lot. Yeah. I like to tell stories, so I think whether I have to form my own company to do it or whatever, I will do whatever I have to do to make it happen. <laughs> You'll find that to, to work. I find that to make it work. How is Stennis? They, they, uh, they, 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 they let you... Um let you give you enough vacation i guess they give you enough vacation to make it work yeah or do you just sneak them some barbecue every once in a while and they think like my coworkers kind of upset at me because i haven't really given them barbecue i say i don't mix business and pleasure together (laughs) oh man that is cold-blooded but i did give my team so i had a project where i developed a camera technology and i tell them if we had a successful continuation review i'll bring you all barbecue Okay. So that was the only time that I brought barbecue to work. You can do it to motivate your uh, <laughs> your your team, but improve motivate your team, increase morale. Oh man, 
That's actually, that is very familiar. We had a, a notorious goat chef who was one of our editors, Anoop Kafle, and was always posting pictures of these incredible goats that he had made in these Nepali dishes. And it took about a year to get him to bring some of that in or like cook for us. But it was, it was effective. It really kind of softened us up, you know, like we were just very desperate to, <laughs> to get at what he was doing. And he was not playing easy to get. As I've said before, it just, you know, we kind of staked our careers on this idea that food can bring people together, not in a like cheesy or, you know, overly earnest way because the world's got serious problems and food is not going to solve all of them. But damn, it's a very useful first starter. I think it's a great first starter. I think it's a good entry point into many cultures, no matter where you're going to. I mean, food is that like that common denominator. And so like when I go to different places, I always try to eat in that particular culture's food. And no matter what it is, I'm willing to try it once. And if I go into somebody's house and they cook it, even in the United States, if they cook it for me, I'm, yeah. I plan to eat it. Yeah, that's, well, there you go. That's you at your most uh, Bordanian, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Man, if you put that social pressure of like, I have cooked this for you and this is what we eat, then he will go down. Just uh, give me to something good it. to drink with it. <laughs> you a nice blood drink to go with your blood soup. Uh, that is true. Well, that's, I think, a good nudge for us. I'm going to get some more of this Uncle Nearest. I think I'm going to go back to New York, but consider myself lucky for, in my short time here, having met among the finest and had the best chicken and a catfish po' boy yesterday. Yeah, where you had a catfish po' boy from? Uh, jeans. Oh, jeans? Okay. Well, because there was a daiquiri shop right next to it. Oh, you oh you found the lit. Man, you do your homework. <laughs> I mean, that's a tough comment. That's, I would say a, a 32-ounce, uh, I don't know if it's that big, 16-ounce uh, styrofoam oh, cup of daiquiris. That's my equivalent of blood soup, you know? That's, oh, okay. That's I forgot lot. to tell you one of my recent projects that's coming up in What's the near that? future. I'm working on this corn project. I'm working on bringing Louisiana Creole corn back. Oh, is this what's on the table in front of us? That's actually uh, Jimmy Redcorn, but uh, David Shields sent some seeds to oh, yeah. um, Englewood Farms in Alexandria, Virginia. Okay. We, we got them from the seed bank, and we should be growing them out there this spring. And so we're going to bring back Louisiana Creole corn that's used to make a dish called Kush Kush. Kush Kush, which is what? It's kind of a, it's a it's, mashed corn? Or? It's like a mashed cornmeal made with milk and cornmeal, and then they kind of sweeten it sometimes with like either molasses, fig preserves, cane syrup. God, this this Louisiana red, I'm going to uh, make it make it sing in front of the mic. It's in this little, uh, it's kind of a test tube vial as a scientist uh, would have it, but it's kind of amazing. It looks like dried pomegranate seeds almost, you know? It, so rich, like so you're, red. You're right. And it, yeah, this Jimmy Ray corn, it does look like pomegranate seeds. That's got to make an incredible color when you make the dish out of it, huh? That's yeah, so but cool. uh, the, the Creole corn will be yellow. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and, and David Shields, he runs... He runs it. It's not. A, is it a seed bank or it's like? He's on the board of the um, Carolina Gold Seed Foundation. Right, right. And he does a lot with trying to bring back lost grains and food products and trying to bring them back to make them commercially viable. At least because yeah. one guy said one time or some woman said, if you don't eat it, it won't last. Right. And so you need people to eat these products to keep them viable. Yeah. Well, that's what I kept telling the goats, you know. <laughs> if we don't eat you, there won't be more goats. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's the only thing I want to cook. It's a Gulf Coast goat I want to cook one day. It's like, is that a breed? Is it's like a, a, hair, a heirloom breed here in the area. Really? Gulf Coast goat. I had. No I mean, idea. maybe it was a Gulf Coast goat or a Gulf Coast sheep. I can't remember off the top of my head. But that's the only animal I think I want to cook. I, I guess you don't really think of livestock so much on the Gulf Coast, although... 
I mean, I remember I was down here right after Plaquemines, right after Katrina. We went down to Plaquemines Parish in a helicopter, and there was like so much livestock, and they were all dead on the levee. I mean, it was pretty brutal scene, but I was just like shocked that there was so much cattle and like it's real ranch country down there, but it's like swamp ranch, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, Plaquemines is pretty big though. All right, so there's Gulf Coast goat. It may be a Gulf Coast sheep, actually. All right, we, we're going to think about it. We're going to check that. If it's if it's Gulf Coast goat, I'm going to come on another flight to get down here. If it's sheep, I'll I'll I'll, I'll read about it in the papers. But why not? You should come on down. I mean, <laughs> you're perfectly welcome. I appreciate that. I have a. Uh, uh, it's sort of a, a long family history with uh, with cooking and eating goats that I will chase that flavor from place to place in a way that I wouldn't for others. So, so if I cook a goat, you'll come back down? Uh, absolutely. Okay, yes. be careful what you put in the atmosphere. <laughs> you, I got plenty of pits back here. Uh, just get a goat anytime. Now, if it's an heirloom goat, I'll be there the same day because <laughs> that sounds amazing. But man, I appreciate you coming on the show and especially doing what you're doing. I hear you about media and, and I, I think you have a gift for it. Just like there's space for your voice in there, you know? The water's warm. Come on in. And the water's warm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try not to drown. <laughs> there it is. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Dr. Conyers. The trip from Luminary Media and Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Taffy Mukunyadze is our editor and, like Dr. Conyers, is another Southerner with a scientific mind. Emily Marinoff is our producer. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Now for a word about Luminary Premium our future and fantastic home for this show. It is a platform for a diverse and amazing array of podcasts that will be yours ad-free for just $7.99 a month. We have a pre-sale offer for listeners to the trip. Sign up for Luminary Premium before April 22nd through luminary.link backslash trip, and you'll be enrolled to win experiences from some of Luminary's most exciting creators, like Dinner with Guy Raz, or a personalized podcast about you from Lena Dunham, or a Brooklyn day drinking and or day eating crawl with yours truly. Go to luminary.link backslash trip to sign up today. That's luminary.link backslash trip to sign up before April 22nd. Terms and conditions apply. As a bonus, you'll knock a dollar off your monthly price for the rest of the year by signing up early. No purchase necessary. Must be 18 years or older and a resident of the continental United States. The sweepstakes ends April 22nd 2019 and is void where prohibited. Now, pardon our dust for the next couple of weeks as we make that move to Luminary. We will be back with an all-new episode on April 29th from Los Angeles, the city of fucking angels, exclusively on the Luminary platform. I cannot tell you how much I hope to see you all there. Again, just go to luminary.link backslash trip to subscribe and make it happen.